Okay. Let's go ahead and get started. It is a gorgeous day outside. Almost makes me want to do this outside, but not quite. It is interesting that here it is February and we're discussing the possibility of having to put the AC on so it doesn't get too warm in here. But we'll see. All right, so we're continuing our study of the doctrine of the church. We've been, um, we spent a good deal of that time, not just on the theological aspects of what the church is and then started talking about church discipline, um, particularly with respect to how the OPC does things. Um, and other Presbyterian churches do things in similar veins, just a little bit different. Um, last week, we started what I've uh, hoped to get to, and which we're starting to do, is kind of this discussion using, um, as a guide, Thomas Witherow's book, The Apostolic Church, which is it? Um, it's a brief, short little booklet. I have no idea if the cover looks like this still. It's gone through so many different printings. Um, so, and you also can find it online for free. Now, last week, um, I was hoping to define the three major areas of, or three major kinds of church government, um, but we got into a, a good discussion about God's word being that which dictates how we're supposed to do things. It dictates how it is we should look at things. And, you know, it, it does get interesting because, especially for those of you that are, are with in the homeschool community and, and private schools that are a little bit more academically oriented, it really does become, as odd as it sounds, becomes this odd discussion of deductive versus inductive reasoning. Um, and of course, being a former geometry teacher and dealing with geometric proofs, um, I usually had to deal with that all the time. Now, it's important to remember that inductive reasoning is just basically like empiricism. You kind of look and observe and come to conclusions based on that. Inductive reasoning can't actually prove anything. It's really good for disproving things. You know, somebody has this idea and then you look for you look in the Bible and you say, well, that contradicts it. So inductive uh, and observations can help you disprove things, but really it's the deductive where you start with a premise and that you have these logical conclusions. And really that's a lot of what uh, geometric proofs were. You guys remember doing geometry proofs? And some people are still doing them. A lot of schools are actually shying away from proofs, which I think is ridiculous. Um, but what ends up happening is in the Bible, we've got this beautiful mix because 
Some things are clearly spelled out in Scripture, are they not? Just, just clear as a bell. Other things, they're sort of, kind of, and we have to make some logical, logical deductions, or we even have to resort to, uh, at least in some respects, certain pragmatic things that conform to the general principles that are found in God's word. So even when we're talking about church government, and this doesn't even have to do with necessarily which one is accurate at the moment, Presbyterianism is, um, but, but how it functions and exactly what it looks like is not going to be spelled out. The principle, we think, Presbyterianism, that's, that's scriptural. How it plays out, eh, I don't know. Every Presbyterian church does it a little bit differently. Each denomination a little bit differently. And so you've always got to have this blend and recognize that you're not going to find, for example, chapter and verse that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uses to say we shall have no more than 155 delegates to General Assembly. You're just not. But there are certain general principles of good order and what we look for and what's allowable. So we spent a good deal of time talking about the reality of God's word and this question of secondary issues. Hey, it's not a matter of salvation, therefore it's not that big of a deal. That's a common thing. And it, it doesn't just lend itself to that kind of a response with respect to um, the question of church government. So, Witherow posits for us three basic forms of church government. Some of you have read the book. What are they? Okay. Yeah. So he describes in this way prelacy, which you can think of a, a, a kind of Episcopalian in its structure. There's independency, which oftentimes we think of congregationalist, and then presbytery, which is what we, the PCA, the RPCNA, the Bible Presbyterian, even the PCUSA has. We don't talk about that. We don't. That's true. <laughs> so, how would you define what is prelacy? Well, that's a word we don't usually use anymore, but... Um, what is prelacy as a form of church government? What does it kind of look like, how Chase? We it well, how is it generally defined? And I'm only strictly speaking of the church government side of things, not the whole soteriology or theology proper or their eschatology, just the function of the church government. I think hierarchical 
Uh, Chase, come on, raise your hand. Back in the classroom, see, I did geometry, and now I'm thinking back at my teacher days. That's right. this hierarchical structure, but we're also going to have to separate that idea from a Presbyterian form, because we have a kind of hierarchy, but it's quite different. Ours is bigger at the top, and theirs is smallest at the top. Okay, yeah, that's a good way to, 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 to simplify it. Theirs is smaller at the top. As you go higher, the authority, the number of individuals, shall we say, that have the power gets smaller. Roy? There's one other place that this discussion shows up. Take management classes that talk about organizations, and they will also have these three concepts of an organization of a or the structure of a particular organization. Think about it in terms of uh, a circle or a group of circles. One circle all by itself is the Baptistic view or a, a company that exists all by itself. Now look inside that company. It will have a hierarchy. It will have a CEO and then underneath of that some other people who make decisions. So you see the same kind of thing in organizations and uh, management principles that talk about the very sorts of questions that you're asking about. Once we adopt this particular view, what does it imply in terms of how that's going to work out? Yeah. So it, it occurs in places besides just in conversations about church government. It does. And there's going to be familiarity for everyone on one level or another. So, uh, Conrad? Gordon's point, you know, he talks about us having kind of an inverted triangle, if you will. I think it's more of a concentric circle. We're always appealing to the broader church to get, you know, now it's hierarchical in the sense that the GA has authority over the Presbyterian, has authority over the session. Yeah. But no one at that level individually has that authority, whereas an archbishop can tell a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, you must do it. Yeah, and that's, that's where the inversion aspect of it takes place. As you get higher, the circle gets smaller or the triangle gets smaller until, like in the context of Roman Catholicism, you've got the Pope. Anybody, by the way, anybody technically know what the difference, uh, what makes a cardinal be a cardinal? He gets the what? Yeah, basically, the, the basic difference between a bishop and a cardinal is that the cardinal gets the vote when it's time to pick a new pope. Now, that's a bit simplistic, but that's, in essence, what you're talking about. He gets prettier red clothing. Yeah, he does get prettier red clothing. That's right. So, 
Here's what Witherow says, and some of you may have come from a, a, a background, a church background that might have some sort of prelacy uh, structure. Prelacy is that form of church government which is administered by archbishops, bishops, deans, archdeacons, and other ecclesiastical office bearers, depending on that hierarchy. Examples, Roman Catholicism. Can anybody think of others? Episcopalian and Anglican, which are basically Eastern Orthodox to a degree. Yeah. What's their top guy? I forget what they call him. Yeah, the patriarch. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Technically, they are quite similar, but they're still going to use the idea of councils. Right. Yeah. Big history there. So Anglicanism or Episcopalianism, um, Roman Catholicism, of course, um, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, just the Orthodox Church, just not the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There are actually others, a couple of them that are actually quite well known. Mormonism. Well, yeah, they're a whole different breed, but yeah, they've got something like that. Mormonism does have something similar, but even in terms of what we would consider, even if nominally so, Christian. Except that the, he, with Baptists, the, the next higher level is just a suggestion. Right, but I mean at the, at the local level. Like not all Baptist churches are congregational. Uh, um, yeah, they still will be. You think, you think like a pastor of that church where the pastor has like an ultimate authority? Yeah, there are Baptist churches that have a session. They do, and so, but, but it never goes beyond that local level. So some congregationalist Baptistic in uh, independent churches kind of do have a blend, and we'll talk about that as we progress through this. Um, but in terms of other churches that have like a prelacy, Methodists, Lutherans, they have something along those lines. It is not, it doesn't quite come to a point like it does with Roman Catholicism, um, but... Uh, there is still that kind of structure. All right. Has anybody, just out of curiosity, anybody come out of a church like an Anglican, uh, Greek Orthodox, Catholic, that had, when, when you came out of that church, did you understand the church government there? No, because I couldn't believe this is what they said instead of what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I have found, which of course is not a proof, it's just my own anecdotal observations, is that I, I, I rarely, rarely ever find people that um, come out of a prelacy type of background that ever truly understood how their government structure works. They just take it for granted. You know, you got your bishop, your archbishop, or whatever they might call them at different levels. But, um, yeah, 
All right, so that's prelacy. Let's talk now about the independence. Independency or congregationalists who'd like to give a shot at the basic idea behind this. Raise your hands, please. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, Derek. Okay, it could be democracy. Uh, and that's where it gets a bit fascinating. Because some independent churches have a blend, and it's not always quite a democracy, but sometimes it is. It really depends on the individual church. They, there's a heavier emphasis, I would say, on the local congregation than, say, Presbyterians. Um, if Clarence was here, he'd be able to give us a better, because he kind of comes out of a Canadian reform background, which is very similar structure to that. But, Conrad? I think the biggest defining feature is the absolute independence of the local church. Yeah, that's probably the defining factor, the absolute... Uh, individualistic view of the local church. So there could be loose connections. But here, for instance, here's what Witherow says. Independency is that form of church government whose distinctive principle is that each separate congregation is under Christ subject to no external jurisdiction whatever but has within itself, in its offers bearers and members, all the materials of government and is such as is at present in practical operation among Congregationalists and Baptists. Now, to be fair, um, let, let's just take, for instance, At the time that the Westminster Divines, Westminster Assembly was meeting and coming up with the Westminster Confession and Catechisms and their own Directory of Public Worship and so forth, there was a small group of individuals that had some problems with it all. They thought that it was too Presbyterian. And this included guys like Owen and Jeremiah Burroughs. Fascinating that these were guys that held to what we would view as covenant reformed infant baptism, but they were congregationalists. I would love to trace out the history of the correlation or the inverse relationship between um, our views of baptism and then also uh, church government with respect to why is it that you really don't hear today of congregationalist churches holding to something like infant baptism like you once did, at least in greater detail? I, I, that's just something I don't know. I just find it fascinating that there is a remarkable correlation. Those who are in form of government, Presbyterian, are typically those who believe in infant baptism. Those who are congregationalists in general typically believe in credo baptism. That wasn't quite as sharp a distinction even at the time of the Westminster Divines 
in the 17th century. Somebody ought to do a dissertation and trace that history. Somebody else. So, all right. How many of you, and this I think is going to be a greater number of hands, have come out of churches that were more congregationalist or independent? Yeah, see, you notice there are a lot more hands that go up here. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I'm going to ask this question, and as all those hands that went up as coming out of an independent kind of church, we'll probably have different answers as to how this played out in that local church. Who made the decisions? Pastor. Was that in your case? It would have been, yeah. Okay. So the pastor would make the decision. So he's kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to insult them, but basically a local pope. Yep. That's always been my experience. Okay. Elders. What's that? Elders. elders. So you've witnessed where there have actually been elders and they made actual ecclesial decisions. Okay. 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 Interesting. Conrad? church we came out of had three pastors on staff, so that constituted a plurality of elders, which the lead, senior pastor believed in, but then they reported to the deacon board as accountability. At the end of the day, all personnel decisions were ultimately just made by the senior pastor. Okay. So he functioned in more or less an executive capacity. Yeah. Like a chairman, a very active chairman of a board. Yeah, Roy. Yeah. Well, I've seen the congregational churches that have a plurality of elders meeting. Usually, in fact, I can't think of any exceptions in my experience, were those who taught sovereign grace. Calvinistic Baptist churches. I've never seen a an Armenian Baptist church that had a plurality of elders where there was equal responsibility. Here in the Tulsa area, we have a number of Sovereign Grace Baptist churches. Each one of them functionally is with a pastor and a plurality of elders, similar to what we see in the OPC in a local congregation. At a local level, yeah. At a local level. And they also have a lot of fellowship with one another and some degree of mutual accountability. Not as formal as the OPC, but I see nothing like that ever in Armenian Baptist churches, Armenian congregational churches. Interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that my experience is proof. Right, right. But I've never seen exceptions to that. Okay, interesting. Jonathan, what were you going to say? Just sort of a, like a leaders in the church. Okay. So they, yeah, you run a business, you, so you must be good to run a church. Uh, that's uh, unfortunately that kind of mindset can infiltrate Presbyterian churches too. Uh, so a couple of different. That's interesting too. Yeah, Derek. 
Mm-hmm. So there would be there would be a fellowship of pastors doing the media to get together, usually cooperate for the general good. Sometimes it would fall apart and not work out. Yeah. So you kind of notice that with independent churches, it's kind of all over the map, isn't it? And that's usually what happens. And I'm not trying to to sound demeaning, but but you, and this is why just by way of example, um, for instance, like, um, and I'm not looking to get into the debate about the subject, but when I have gotten into debates concerning infant baptism versus credo baptism. It usually, especially if I've never uh, interacted with the individual, it usually takes me a while to figure out what kind of an angle they're coming from. Are they dispensational? Are they new covenant theology? Are they progressive covenantalism? Are they 1689? Are they, well, I just picked up my Bible and that's what it said, you know? That's, that's, and a lot of times when you start talking about getting into the topic of church discipline, even, and, you know, the, hey, I've got this situation. It's always funny. People think they can ask strangers online for advice, but not their own elders. But, okay, um, I've got this situation, and then people give their advice, and you can see they're coming from all over the map, especially those that are from independent or congregationalist churches, because there's nothing set in stone for them. It's just the local congregation has the ultimate jurisdiction. Amy, were you? Oh, I was just gonna add to the mix, coming from a you know, charismatic, independent churches where it was Mr. and Mrs. Pastor. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's another side to it, of course. Mr. and Mrs. Pastor. They have plurality of elders. Yeah, well, I guess you could argue that's a plurality of elders, but okay. So, so you see, it, it does, it, it, there's a sense where with independent congregationalist churches and with, with no... Um, direct connection, it seems, to their theological perspective, um, you, you really can end up all over the map. Um, and that, that does get tricky, I'm sure, and sometimes. But let me, let, let me ask you this, especially those that came out of an independent church. If you have witnessed the process where somebody was excommunicated from the church, who made the decision? The pastor, okay. Actually, it's not true. The pastor made a case to the congregation. Okay, so the congregation made the decision. But it never would have gotten to that point if the pastor hadn't. Yes, right. Anybody else experience anything different? Yeah, Ron?
have two, when I, for most of the time I was there, part of the time I was there. Then they had, I believe they had an elder board, which consisted of men and women. And then they had a governing board, which was separate. Hmm. And Interesting. Because who's the boss? Yeah. There were two, and, and there was, it was problematic. As far as excommunication goes, uh, I don't think I've ever been in a church where I've seen that occur, at least not publicly. Uh, I know there's been situations within some of the churches I've gone to where it should have happened, but it did not. Yeah, okay. Uh, from what I have, the limit, and again, this is just anecdotal from individuals that I've known and a couple of things you see online, but typically what I've observed or heard is that the, the issue comes before the congregation and the congregation makes the final vote. Uh, that's, is that across the board? I don't know, but that's all I've ever seen, which is not often. Uh, but but that's all I've ever. I believe that's what would have happened. Okay, okay. So at the Mennonite Church, and and part of their reasoning for this, and we'll we'll get into this a bit more as we start discussing some of this. They look at the the passage of Matthew eighteen, and you get to the steps of church discipline. If, if they still will will not listen, you take it to the church. They interpret church there as being the whole body. Yeah, same idea. Um, whereas as Presbyterians, we recognize that church as a word in the Bible can carry different connotations uh, depending on the perspective. And Presbyterians believe that Christ has given first the apostles and then after them, this is the true apostolic succession. Authority to the elders, the keys of the kingdom belong to the elders of the church. And so the church in those instances where they exercise the keys is talking about the elders. That's just a short description. What about in a prelacy? Who decides that? The Pope. Well, yeah. It's the bishop at the local level. Yeah. And it may be nuanced depending on which denomination you're talking about, but it really ultimately rests in the hands of one individual. Can you imagine? Your, your life in the life of the church left to the hand of a single individual? It doesn't matter how trustworthy they are. Individuals are fallible. Well, groups are fallible too, but at least there, there's something to it. Did you have a statement or comment? Oh, that's fine. I do that all the time too. So uh, these are the three basic forms of government. And then, of course, we've got now Presbytery or Presbyterian. Now, how would you describe Presbyterian? Awesome. Okay, all right. Well, sure. Now, and, uh, you know, that's certainly true, but of course, you know, then we would have to say in terms of Presbyterianism, well, the PCUSA is awesome. Well, they get church government kind of right, but... So what's a simple way to describe, to describe Presbyterianism? How would you? Plurality of elders at all levels of the church. Okay, plurality, plurality of elders at all levels of the church. Roy? A recognition that the church is bigger than a local congregation. Okay. I would add also that Presbyterianism embodies the concept of in a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. Yeah, uh huh. But you could make but, the same argument with prelacy because they have 
Yes. And this is where it gets fun because there are certain areas in which you could say that a prelacy, they, they, they almost get certain things right because they recognize, for instance, they will say it's the Roman Catholic Church, singular. We're the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, singular. So they're, they're at least on that narrow sense, we're kind of alike that we recognize that the church is broader than just a single local congregation. It, that would be one single aspect on church government that we would agree with on a prelacy. Sure. There's a lot of overlap in communication between those two guys. Yeah. Uh, one might look at Martin Lloyd Jones, whom I would think of as a congregationalist. Yes. And there's a, a, a lot of overlap in his interaction with others. But it's not the same kind of thing that you see in the overlap in the OPC. Correct. Where there is a, an accountability And it's an accountability with a greater number of elders who hold the same level of office. Yes. That's a key thing. As we get to the next level, like Presbytery, uh, a synod higher than a Presbytery and then a General Assembly, what you have is a larger pool, a larger plurality of elders, but they hold the same office. It's not a higher office. What it is is a higher court. If that makes sense. So here, let me just, well, yeah, Jonathan, go ahead. So as a member, you are in much safer hands. You have, you know, you have a problem. You can appeal to your session. You can appeal to the Presbyterian. You ultimately can take it to the GA. If you're, I've, I've heard a story uh, from one professor at RTS or the entire session became corrupt, going to each other's houses, putting all the keys in a bowl, and that got found out, and basically the whole session is cleared out. Yeah, and, and see, in principle, Presbyterianism should work that way, but there's no question, this drives me nuts, and other friends of mine, too, when people try to use the black book, they know their black book. I'm sorry, I'm saying that's our book of church order. We just affectionately call it our black book. Um, that will, will take certain aspects of it and try to twist it to their own ends. It happens in Presbyterian, even in the OPC. And so that's why it's important that all of us, even as, as lay people, if I can use that expression, that book of church order is yours. If you're a member of the OP, any OPC, that book of church order is yours. You should know the basics of how the, the government of the church functions. You should know the basics of how church discipline is initiated or how to, to complain if you think the session has acted wrongly. Things like that, the basics of it. Yeah, even if you don't know the ins and outs and the intricacies of every little detail, that's okay. 
But if you've got that reference in your hand, you can turn to page such and such and know that that's your book. Trish, you had something? Yeah, I was just going to testify, just working behind the scenes um, at General Assembly. No matter how much something gets thrown into the court of public opinion online, these men still follow the procedures. It gets noisy and messy online, just back off online, back off the rumors, back off the slander, and look to the church courts and trust them, because in the end of the day, they're not influenced by the court of public opinion, and they really shouldn't be. The, the Presbyterian Church will do its job according to its standards, and we just got to, all of us should take a step back offline, off of the internet world, don't use it as your church opinion court, because in the end of the day, you can trust that the Presbyterian church courts are doing their job. Yeah, what it really, I mean, that's a key point, is when the court of public opinion gets there out on the uh, Al Gore's interwebs um, before it gets into formally the debate on the church court floor. That can be very frustrating. Um, as a church yeah. photographer for uh, working in General Assembly, I was able to spot a woman sitting amongst the crowd feeding the online world the things that were happening that should not have been fed in the online world and just was able to do a maneuver on her to get her out of there. So was she allowed to be there? Yes. Was she supposed to be doing what she was doing? No. This is just years ago. But this is just to let you know that... People are going to do their best to use the online world as part of the church boards. It's not going to take effect. Yeah. In, in that situation, um, quite literally, somebody across the pond was taking direct quotes of what was currently being debated yes. on the floor. Yes. And while the courts of the church are open, this specific case dealt with very sensitive yes. family issues. Yes. And that's where some of us were just irate about this. Look, courts of the church are open. Somebody across the pond is, is getting instant information that the General Assembly decided this or decided that. Fine, post it. Sustained a complaint, denied a complaint. Fine, post it. But don't take direct quotes that are dealing with sensitive issues within a family. That was what was reprehensible to me. And this was sort of a, a, a sneaky way to do this. So my point is, don't put your information online because the church courts are doing their job in-house and you can talk to your elders and you can talk to yes. those who are here to the ground and trust them. Don't just trust the court of the public. Yeah. Always remember, always remember Proverbs eighteen seventeen. Hugely important verse. And I'm paraphrasing it, but I've got the general gist of it. The first to present his case seems right until another comes along and questions him. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked to in the past. I've had individuals that um, are across the denomination because of my work at GA and different things. Every so often people will ask me procedural questions about how to do things because I'm in this pickle. I've got this situation. Okay, just based solely on what you're telling me. Understand, I don't have all the information. Here's procedurally what you're supposed to do. And I just stick to those procedural questions. I can't just simply 
take a side without hearing the other side. That's, to me, there, there's a kind, that, that's immoral. It, you have to hear both sides, and there's a certain sense where if I ever got involved at a formal level of being somebody's counsel that, that goes up to, say, General Assembly, even if I'm that individual's counsel, there's, there's a certain sense where I don't even view it that I'm on his side or her side. What I want is ultimate justice in a righteous and godly and Christ-like manner. And if that means this guy loses, so be it. Because I'm concerned about the general welfare of the church and that's what should always be the case. And it is so imperative so imperative that the elders go into presbytery meetings, go into general assembly with an understanding of the situation, understanding of what's going on. Don't just simply take the word for it. Well, that person is a stand-up guy in the OPC, and they may well be, but they can make mistakes. They can actually say dumb things on the floor. And I know that about myself too. Don't just take my word for it. Question, that's the whole point. And Proverbs 18, 17 is such a wonderful, you'll get all kinds of twisted things online about court cases in the church courts. And it's like, oh, that's horrible. And then you find out they left out key information. How convenient. So, Conrad? Two. No matter what kind of government you have, and I, I believe Presbyterianism is a biblical model, but it's still sinners. Yes. It's, the Bible doesn't give us a reason to believe the perfection that will occur in the church. In fact, the example of the epistles and the direct testimony of the epistles is that the exact opposite of what sometimes occur. Yeah. And so when guys come along like the Eastern Orthodox or Catholics like to do this, well, the Holy Spirit ensures that in council we never err. I don't see that promise in the Bible. Right. And that's, that's really what it all boils down to. That, that's a, that, that's, what I'm describing here is not so much what defines Presbyterianism. It's more what ought to flow out of Presbyterianism. Is that these checks and balances are there in place. If I go to Presbytery or General Assembly with a particular kind of argument... I want to hear those who disagree with me. Maybe they can convince me. And maybe the whole church is unconvinced by what I have to say. My question then for any other individual like myself that where I'm in the minority and I lose the vote, what do I do then? Hopefully, the answer is I submit to my brothers. Not blindly, but I submit to my brothers. That's what should happen. Now, again, I'm talking about how it plays out and, and so forth, but um, really, Presbyterianism, that's a key thing to remember. As you move up to the next level, it's the same elders. It's not a higher elder that makes a decision. It's the same elders. That's what it boils down to. Roy? That statement you just made about submit to brothers has a, an element to it that we ought to recognize. That's a faith commitment. Yeah. You're in a situation where you're accused and you think the other people have made a mistake, but the brothers have come to a conclusion. And you submit because you believe that 
it boils down to. Unfortunately, guys, I'm out of time. So um, it's a good discussion, even though we kind of went off on a tangent. These are important things and, and things to keep in mind. Um, we just need to, and let me just highlight again, pray for your elders, not just the local elders, but the elders across the denomination, that at the end of the day, we are seeking the honor of Christ and the good of his sheep. That's what we need to pray for. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Our Father in God in heaven, we do give you praise and thanks that you have given us elders, that the Lord Jesus Christ rules his church primarily through word and spirit, and the elders who apply that word in the everyday. We do pray that you would give them wisdom to rightly apply the word in difficult situations and circumstances. May they do so without partiality. May they do so without favoritism. May they do so only for the sake of Jesus Christ and the good of the church at whole. And now, Lord, we do pray that as we're about to come into your presence to worship you, we ask that you would guide our hearts and minds and prepare us, for we are coming to honor the King. We pray all this in his name. Amen.